continuing our study of friendship. And we've been tackling this issue because we as a society have so much difficulty uh, with um, the issue of relationships generally. Uh, we have difficulty with marriage. We have difficulty with family relationships between parents and children. The issue of friendship tends to get lost in all of that. How do you have good friends? How do you have godly friends who will encourage you and be a support to you in times of trouble and in good times? Uh, how do we go about this? And is there anything in the scriptures on this issue uh, that might help us meet this need that our society has? We've been finding a lot of things we've been finding that God's wisdom focuses on some key questions. You, you gather friends that share what you love. And so the Proverbs are constantly bringing us back to this question. What do you love? Because whatever you love, whatever you're pursuing, whatever you're engaged with, that's going to be what you gather your friends around. Because maybe it's an activity, an aspiration, uh, uh, whatever it may be, um, and uh, you, we gather friends around those things for well or ill. If we love the things of God, the wisdom of God, if we love the kingdom of Jesus Christ, we're going to gather friends around that. That just happens in a very natural way. If we love scoffing, if we love sinful patterns of life, we are also going to gather friends around those things. And the problem we often find when we're trying to repent of sin is that we've gathered all of our friends around our sins. And so to turn from those sins is to turn from our network, to turn from uh, those who have been with us and been our support in sin. And many of us are in that place trying to figure out, okay, how do, we, how do we rebuild a network that is around the shared love of God's things, God's wisdom, and the kingdom of Jesus Christ? Where we're at this morning is going back to that question, what do we love? And more specifically, where is your confidence? And what do you put your confidence in as a way of gaining friends? In particular, this morning, uh, we're going to be talking about wealth. Many people have um, an idolatrous confidence in wealth, both to make them attractive to other people and a confidence in wealth to make them needed and valued by others. Conversely, many people have confidence that if they make friends who are wealthy or who have resources, that they will benefit from that kind of friendship. This is one of the big unspoken issues of uh, any time, and especially our time, because uh, we are a society deeply devoted to the pursuit of wealth. And uh, I, just in all honesty, I, I so often find myself preaching sermons that I've never heard anywhere before. This is one. 
bring our attention back to the gospel of Jesus Christ and to the way that Jesus actually approaches this issue. I'm struck by the verse right before Proverbs 19, and that is Proverbs 18.24. A man of many companions may come to ruin. You can succeed at Dale Carnegie's game and still ruin your life. You can win all kinds of friends and influence all kinds of people and face personal disaster and spiritual disaster. A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. We're going to meet that friend this morning. Let's dive in this morning. Let's talk about the flow of thought here in these Proverbs. One of the reasons we don't like the Proverbs is because we have our expectations set that this is God's wisdom for how to live your life, and the book of Proverbs is designed to give you the answers to all of your questions. If you want to know how to handle money, the Proverbs will tell you how to do that. If you want to know how to make friends, the Proverbs will tell you how to do that. If you want to know anything about godliness or wisdom, the Proverbs are there to give you the answers, and then we actually read Proverbs, and we discover that it does not give very many answers. It is stubbornly distant from us and presents us with a succession of riddles. And in fact, Solomon tells us that this is what he is doing in the very first chapter in the prologue of Proverbs. He tells us, I'm going to give you riddles. I'm going to help you understand the riddles of the wise. Accessing wisdom of God means taking these Proverbs and reflecting on them, working on them, and really accepting that they are designed in the flow of thought, not so much to answer questions. They are designed to raise them. Because very often, we come to the wisdom of God with the wrong questions. And for us to get answers to the wrong questions is actually to get sent on the wrong track. You may be here this morning desperately lonely, and you want to know how to be significant to somebody, anybody. How do I do it? And Solomon would come back to us and say, hmm, it's the wrong question. Let me show you the right questions. And here is how he does it. He puts us in a flow of thought that is riddling us, that is uh, prodding us, poking at us a little bit and saying, what do you think about this? Compare this and that. What do you think? Make a determination. Puzzle this out. Here's how it works. The Proverbs are true, each one of them on their own. Look at verse 3. When a man's folly brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. When catastrophe strikes, you don't find very many people saying, you know, 
set this catastrophe in motion. Now, I need to take responsibility for the decisions that I made to bring this about. You don't find very many people doing that. When catastrophe strikes, what happens? Why me? This isn't fair. This should never have happened. Where was God when all of these disasters struck in my life? This is deeply true. On its own, if this was all you had of the book of Proverbs, it would be pretty interesting to explore just this one truth that so often when catastrophe strikes, we rage against the Lord as if it's his fault. And in fact, in about a month, we're going to spend a sermon on that one proverb. So in each case, you look at all of these proverbs just as standalone statements. They are true. They are interesting on their own, and they have things to say to us on their own. But then Solomon is not content with that. He arranges each of these true statements in an order. And uh, places like Ecclesiastes 12 tell us this. He spent time studying and arranging the Proverbs so that they would help us track with uh, the thinking of wisdom. So when you look at these nine verses here, even going back to verse 23 of chapter 18, and I would say you could keep going back even further than that, you have to start with the assumption these little statements, each one true on its own, have been arranged for us to think about the arrangement. So here's another way that this happens through repetition. I don't know if you noticed this. When Paul uh, read this passage for us earlier in the hour, but verse 5 and verse 9 of chapter 19 are repetitive. In fact, the first line of both of them is a word-for-word repetition. A false witness will not go unpunished, says verse 5, and he who breathes out lies will not escape. Verse 9, a false witness will not go unpunished, and he who breathes out lies will perish. The wording is almost exactly the same in both of those verses, except for the last couple of words in verse 9. And the minute you see something like that, the minute you see a repeated phrase, a repeated proverb, and there are many of them, they occur all the time in the book of Proverbs, your job is to stop and say, why did he just repeat himself? He told us that back before. We get to verse 9 and we see that this is exactly the same idea as verse 5. We wonder, Solomon, did you forget or were you getting old and you forgot that you told us that one already? No. Solomon is a wily, cagey, crafty guy. And he repeats things for a reason. This means that this phrase here, a false witness will not go unpunished, but is headed for destruction. If you're breathing out lies and deception, you're headed for a calamity. That repetition is telling us this is an important insight into what he's talking about in these verses. It's laying down a marker here. It's a big part of the puzzle we have to put together. So, each of these proverbs stand on their own as true statements. Sometimes they're repeated. And 
when they're repeated, there's an emphasis there that we need to look at. Finally, the Proverbs, as a flow of thought, are arranged with care. Go back to verse 1, let's look at the first three verses. Better is a poor person who walks in his, what? Integrity. Than one who is crooked in speech and is a fool. So we take that statement and we say he's emphasizing here that a poor person who has integrity is better than a fool who is crooked. And you take that and you compare it with verse 5. A false witness will not go unpunished. Verse 9, where it's repeated, a false witness will not go unpunished. Put those together and you realize he's saying something here about poverty and deception and therefore wealth and deception. He's saying that it's possible for you to gain wealth in life while breathing out lies and your wealth will not save you from the calamity that is coming. Conversely, he is saying that it is possible for you never to gain wealth, to go through life poor, but truthful, faithful, loyal, with fidelity, with integrity, and that that life of poverty with integrity is better than the crooked life, even if the crooked life leads to wealth. See how this works? We're in a flow of thought here, and the more you think about these individual proverbs, the more you compare them back and forth, the richer they get, and the more full of wisdom uh, they become. Let's do a little bit more of this by looking at the whole flow of these nine verses and see what they have to say about passage starts with this observation, which really gives, in a simple way, the theme that Solomon is stating for at least these nine verses. It's probably a theme that he's been working on before it, and it's certainly a theme he will keep working on after it. But for these nine verses, the key idea is in verse 1. So let's look at verses 1 through 3 and get some of the perspective, the sense of proportion here about um, wealth and poverty and what uh, what it means in life. Um, We've just come off of these statements back in the previous chapter. The poor use entreaties, but the rich answer roughly. The poor lack power. They can feel helpless. They can actually be helpless. And so, you know, they, they're they looking for that person of fidelity, that friend who sticks closer than a brother. And so we get to chapter 19, verse 1. Better is a poor person who walks in his integrity than one who is crooked in speech and is a fool. So, you're poor, you're feeling 
and you're feeling the stress of, of things, financial worries mounting, you're, you're feeling all of this coming at you, and what's the temptation? The temptation is, I got to get a friend or a, uh, you know, somebody to bail me out of this. I got to get somebody on my side here. I've got to get something so that I can get ahead of these financial problems. So the poor make entreaties, the rich answer roughly. What are the poor tempted to do to gain favor with the rich? Buy. It's all in the same. Don't do it. Don't seek to make yourself higher status or seek for greater wealth or lie about what you're worth or any of these kinds of things to gain the friendship or the help or whatever it may be of rich people. Don't do that. Don't tell those lies because better is a poor person who walks in his integrity than one who is crooked in speech and is a fool. You're better in poverty with your integrity even if your lies succeed. You gain the wealth that you're seeking. Why, Solomon? Well, look at verse 2. Desire without knowledge is not good. And whoever makes haste with his feet misses his way. So, here's what I have observed about um, desire without knowledge in relation to wealth. Everyone, at some level, wants to win the lottery. You want to buy that ticket, and you want to have it come up that you won the Powerball thing of $250 million, and, oh, I would just be set if that happened. I desire that to happen. Even if you never buy the lottery ticket, you, you kind of want it. You kind of say, it would, it, I would be able to do so much good, is what we always say about this. Desire without knowledge is not good. Let me ask you this question. Do you know what $250 million is? I actually don't. I mean, I can add and subtract and, and, and you, I can run those numbers, but I don't know what $250 million is. I don't know what it can do. I don't know how to manage it. I don't know. If, if you gave it to me tomorrow, I wouldn't know what to do with it. I would have to do some work to figure out how do you treat $250 million. Now, $250, that I know pretty well. I, I got a handle on $250. And here's the thing I noticed about uh, people in relation to wealth. And I put myself in this category. We want more, but we don't know how to handle it. We don't know the pressures that come with it. We have desires. We really don't know what those desires mean. I can be confident of this. The first thing I would start to feel 
after an initial euphoria of winning the Powerball, one of the first creeping things that would come into my mind after I got that $250 million, anxiety, stress. What if I lose it? What if I, you know, that's, I do know that's a lot of money. That far I've got in, in my education in relation to $250 million. And because it's a lot of money, I kind of wonder who I ask for help. Because, you know, it's, my friend got $250 million. I'd love for them to ask me for help about how to manage it. I'd really like that opportunity. So that means i got to watch who I talk to about this. I've got to watch who I take advice from. And if I've got to watch that, and if I don't really know what $250 million is, then how am I going to manage it and not blow it? These anxieties start to come into play because desire without knowledge is not good. And whoever makes haste with his feet misses his way. And the headlong pursuit of wealth. We miss things. People become wealthy every day who have no idea how to handle athletes who sign for the sports team. You know that story. It happens all the time. It plays out again and again and again. 25-year-old who sells an internet business for hundreds of millions of dollars. Now what? These things happen. And we know that the desires pent up behind that are not because in reality, we're meddling with things that we don't actually understand. So, Solomon is saying, better a poor person who walks in his integrity than one who is crooked in speech and is a fool. So if you're tempted to lie because you want more money, the next thing that Solomon says is, desire for more money or a lot of money or what you think is security, that desire is not good. It's going to steer you the wrong way. You're going to make haste to gain whatever you can. You're going to miss important things along the way. See how this works? We're in a flow of thought here, and that's why we get to verse 3, which we looked at before. It makes total sense. When a man's folly brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. It's God's fault that I lost that $250 million. Where was he when all those shysters came around me and took all my money? Where was he when I didn't know that you were supposed to pay this much tax to the federal government? Where was God when... See how this works? I do stupid things. Calamity results because I had desires without knowledge. And I compromised my Calamity strikes, and all of a sudden it's God's fault. By the way, the desire for wealth can also not. 
question. suicide all around you in your community, families falling apart, people going nuts because they are succumbing to the stresses of the Great Depression. And uh, where you, you are literally scraping every bit of cloth that you can get so that you'll have clothes. For I was uh, talking to my mom about um, Depression era uh, family members made clothes out of feed sacks. And so you, you keep the, the cotton from feed sacks because that's where the dresses are going to come from for school. You know, that's a whole different way to live. There's fear and there's hunger and there's despair behind all of that. And in the case of, of my grandparents, a certain resolution we will never let this happen to us again. Never be this in despair again. And uh, here's the striking thing, so I will say about this is that uh, their anxiety got worse, not better. The better they did, the worse it got. And why is that? Because desire without knowledge is not to aspire after things that we don't have just because we don't have them. We think there's going to be security and power and influence in those things. Um, it's going to lead us off track. And when it comes to calamity, we're going to be embittered against God. This happens again and again and again. We're headed back into friendship with the next verses. Here's the connection where we look at deception. I'd like you to look with me at verse 4 of chapter 19. Wealth brings many new friends. That's a great thing, riches. Everybody loves you when you're rich. Everybody wants your time. Everybody wants to be your friend. I'm told you, when, when you win Powerball, you, you discover family members, you many new friends. But a poor man is deserted by his friend. It's true, isn't it? If all of a sudden you don't bring enough to the table in the friendship, what's going to happen in the friendship? All things being equal in this fallen world where people are faithless and deceitful, where people make promises that they can't keep, ditch their friends and going gets tough. What happens to the friendship when we get poor? Poor man's deserted by his friends. So, your wealth, which you got out of desire, without knowledge, your wealth is bringing you many new friends. But it's also bringing the anxiety that you know if you screw this up, lose that, you'll lose all those friends. They won't be hanging around. Which raises the question, 
is hated. How much more do his friends go far from him? He pursues them with words, but does not have them. His friends flee. Uh, you understand, this is Solomon saying, this is the way the world is. This is how this works. Relationships, he says, in a fallen world are this game about status and wealth. If you're generous and you've got it to give, or at least if you've got the credit card with the balance ample enough to give, you can give the impression that everyone should like you. Granted. But when you're poor, everyone will run and you'll discover that's the value I actually have. It's in what I was able to buy or purchase, whatever it may be. And um, so he's, he's giving us a hard reality check here. And he's saying, you pursue wealth and the wealthy, and you want to be their friend, and you want, to, you want their status to rub off on you. And you're putting your confidence in that wealth and that status. And in the bargain, you're collapsing your life. Because you're trusting in things that never stick around and always go away. So what about that? Um, just a, a comment about this. Some kind of 
his life, they don't actually look that good. Look at him from another angle, they don't really look that good. It's just the way it goes. They're human and we're not beautiful from every angle. It may be that it's not the issue of wealth, it might be that it's the issue of beauty or uh, appearances of some other kind, um, physical health, robustness, the appearance of your body. I mean, we're living in a culture where everything is, is tracing back to how you look. And how you look determines whether you should have friends. That's a really sickening thing. Because if I live another 30 years, it ain't going to look so good. It's just not. It's a question for me now. So, they, I mean, this is just the law of life. So what is this? 80-year-olds shouldn't have friends? 80-year-olds aren't valuable? Or is this what we're saying? I think we would never say that outright. But if we look at the devaluing of age, if we look at the devaluing of people with physical and mental challenges, if we look at all of these kinds of things, saying this. But what about that? Solomon says, whoever gets sense loves his own soul. Shift your confidence for attracting and building friends away from the superficialities of wealth and status. Shift your confidence back to the purpose of your life, and that is to serve and love and glorify Jesus Christ. Turn with me to Mark chapter 10. Wisdom literature is pointing us to the gospel. Because the wisdom literature in Proverbs ultimately comes from Jesus. I'll just direct you again to Proverbs chapter 8 for that. So here's Jesus, Mark chapter 10, rich young ruler. You know the story? man ran up and knelt before Jesus and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And they have a whole exchange about this. And Jesus basically says, well, you know, the Ten Commandments, you should keep them. And he says, I have. Jesus says, okay, well, the next thing you should do, in fact, the one thing that you lack, sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come, follow me. What's he telling this guy to do? Be poor. Everything that you have gained from being wealthy, sell it. Reduce your status. Reduce what you can do for your friends. Reduce the scope of your generosity. Get rid of all of it and follow me. Follow me with what you have minus all of your property, all of your bank accounts, the IRA, all of the investments, all of it. Follow me with what you've got dripping wet. And he says, no. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. So 
of the great possessions is the fact that his confidence was in those possessions and in you. He wasn't going to give them up, not even for Jesus, not even for eternal life. Remember what the question was? What do I lack to gain eternal life? Jesus says, you lack this. Your confidence is in your wealth, and you won't sell me for anything, not even for me. And it strikes me that um, what Jesus said, what is said about Jesus here in verse 21, Jesus looking at him, loved him. Isn't that wonderful? That this man is in the process of rejecting Jesus, maybe not permanently, but at least at this point in his life, he's rejecting Jesus. Jesus loves him. And that's why he tells him the truth about who he is, what he values, and how he's gathering his friends. So you know that story. You may not know the rest of this, disciples were amazed that Jesus talked about the difficulty of the wealth of getting into the kingdom. Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Because we all desire that. We all want it. So how can we be saved? if that's the case. And Jesus says, well, it's not possible with men, but it is possible with God. And then, watch this. Verse 28. Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. You see that, Jesus? We've done nothing. We've left our businesses Verse 29, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses, brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions. And in the age to come, what? Eternal life. The answer to the rich young ruler's question. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. What is Jesus saying here? I'm going to stick with you. You've left all to follow me. I am with you. I'm going to stick closer to you than a brother. Because you are valuable because of what I have created in you. significance of wealth. Because it's not just about dollars. It's about something else. What is wealth about? It's about security. 
Is it about status? Is it about freedom? Will you take that significance? Whatever it is that wealth means to you, will you take that security? Freedom? Ease? Whatever it is, will you take it and hand it over to Jesus? Give that significance to Him. He will stick with you closer than a brother. And because He knows your true value, He knows it because He died for it and went to the cross to save you and redeem you. Will you trust Him with that today? If you do, you will find that your ability to make friends explodes a hundredfold because you're not confident in the things that trap us in evil. You're confident in the Redeemer and in the Savior. The wisdom of Solomon about friendship and the cracked foundations that we so often build friendships upon. Take a couple of questions here. Um, comment, please, on Luke 16, 9. Well, I don't have that one memorized, so I will find it. Luke 16, 9. tell you, thank you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. You would land me at the end of the hour in one of the most complicated parables ever. <laughs> uh, so, just comment on that, Pastor. Just straighten that out. Um, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, um, and if you drop down to Luke 16, 14, they're listening to this, and Luke says the Pharisees were lovers of money. They actually connected their wealth to the security of their salvation and their righteousness, and they did this theologically, um, as many people do today, uh, linking wealth and salvation and, and spiritual blessings. Um, so what Jesus is saying to them is, ah, use it up. Quit judging the people who you think are less than you, who do not have the high status that you think you have, and spend everything you've got to make friends with them. Maybe, just maybe, they'll receive you when they get to heaven. So it is a crushing rebuke to the Pharisees in their linkage of wealth and spiritual blessing. You would have to take this run it straight across to any of the prosperity gospel teachers who would take something like we just read in Mark 10 and say, Jesus' intention for you is to get rich. You can see that every single thing we just talked about this morning is being taught as the gospel. And so what Jesus says here would apply straight across to that gospel uh, that is a lesser-known aspect of Phariseeism. Okay. Um, 
Bible in the pew is much different from the one you just read uh, from Proverbs 18.24. Man who has friends must himself be friendly, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Uh, so what you have in the, uh, the rack in front of you is the New King James Version. I'm preaching out of the ESV Version. Um, they are both very good. Um, the, so I would have to look into why that disparity. Um, but um, chances are it has something to do with alternative readings. So sorry about that. Because of him, uh, you are in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. He is the ultimate triumph. And I think a good, good scripture for that. That's First Corinthians. Um, I'm sorry, I got First Corinthians one thirty. If you want to look that up, um, I have the immediate answer to two hundred and fifty million dollars. something about hoarding wealth for security's sake, for emotion's sake, that um, is uh, a deep part of who we are as a people. Let me just add this. Um, one of the things that is important to do with an amount of money like $250 million is invest so that the lives of other people can be uh, enlivened with jobs and things like this. There is a ministry aspect to business life. And um, it's very important we understand that there are profoundly wise, wealthy, and godly people who view their investments genuinely as a way to build up communities. And um, I think there is a massive difference between the sort of corporate raider mentality of this piling up profits, however you want to characterize that, and a wealthy person who invests in the community and raises up jobs and, and, uh, and raises people's lives. Um, there are many, many for that amount of money. Um, not all of them direct. Sometimes it needs to be indirect. And, uh, but with that clarification, um, it will fill our hearts to divest our fortune in the interest of raising people up. That's what uh, a wise person does. Um, 
where does wealth come into this? I value that more than wealth. Um, the poor man is deserted by his friends. What about that? Now what? Uh, what do I lack and what do I do? Um, and I think that is, in many ways, the real point of Proverbs 19. The ruin that's being talked about may not be economic. Um, the ruin may be um, someone at the point of death who has no love in their life because they sold it all out. That is a profound tragedy, and it is a deep kind of ruin that is happening all the time. Um, and uh, so, whereas love in this is right at the heart of this, if we want love to be at the center of our lives, of our friends, we have to put our confidence in lovely truths, a lovely mission, and a lovely saving. And that's what brings friends to see us for the value that we have in Christ. Um, very, very good questions here. Just a couple more. And then we have an occasion here to uh, mark. Uh, does wealth mean money? Or does money mean you're smart? Or does a lot of money bring out the fool? That's almost proverbial there. Um, uh, wealth better mean more than money, or it's not going to last. Because money doesn't last. Your money in your pocket today will not be worth the same tomorrow, even if it's cash. Um, so um, money does bring out 